You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. Mm. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. You know, we've, we've deliberately put this service together to, as much as we can, minimise self-congratulation. Because we understand, as Jimmy said, that the only reason this place is still standing, uh, the only reason that any of us here with a heart and affections turned towards the Lord uh, uh, is because of His grace. And so, all glory to God, all praise and honour to God this morning. Um, uh, it's always puzzled me and, and irritated me when I've been watching um, TV shows like MasterChef, which I maintain I watch for the sake of my children who love it for some reason. Like the, I, I, I don't know what it is. I think it's the, uh, the judging thing. Um, so that's what hooks them in. Anyway, I've always been kind of puzzled at least and possibly irritated by contestants who in the, the biggest, most important part of the show, like it's the final week or whatever, it's, the, it's a crunch time, and they decide to make something that they have never made before. Like, what are you doing? Surely that's the time where you go to the thing that you know best. Just go back to what you know. Well, uh, that does irritate me, but I've kind of done the same thing myself this morning, because what we do, if you're not familiar with our church, we tend to do is just take whole books of the Bible, preach verse by verse through them until we're done, and our plan... Uh, stretches out at this point in pencil to in, well into 2020 in terms of what we're going to teach. And so we like to get ahead of the game and, and come prepared. This week, I've, I've thrown all of that out the window. Uh, at the moment, we're teaching through the Minor Prophets, the 12 books, last 12 books of the Old Testament. We've put that aside. And this week, I just decided, said to God, I will preach on our big 10th birthday celebration, I will preach whatever jumps out at me in my own morning Bible reading this week. And so I was kind of hoping that something would jump out early in the week, just to give me a bit of time. Thankfully, it did. Tuesday, I was reading through Luke. I came to this passage that Jimmy just read for us, and my mind was blown by it, and I thought, that's the one. At the same time, I thought, this is, this is way too big for me to try and talk about in one sermon, especially in a service where we're trying to you know, keep things pretty tight, uh, time-wise, this is too big. And so then I thought, maybe this isn't the one that's going to jump out at me the most. Maybe tomorrow something will jump out at me more and it'll be a little more easy to handle, right? A little more low maintenance. And so I kept going in my daily reading, week, day after day. It got to yesterday and nothing had jumped out at me as much as the thing that jumped out at me on Tuesday. So now, now, I'm, now I'm in trouble and I've got to take what was too much to do starting Tuesday and do it in a day. And so that's what has happened. That's where we are. Luke chapter 6. This is a mind-blowing passage. And the danger for us this morning is that we're so familiar with this kind of teaching from Jesus that our minds will refuse to be blown. Uh, Familiarity breeds contempt. And so what I'm praying this morning is that we will receive these words just like the original hearers received them, just like they kind of, they, they kind of um, impressed on me back on Tuesday morning. The same would be true for us. Because here's the thing, right? This teaching in Luke 6 
what's known as the, the Sermon on the Plain, is sort of a corollary to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6. And they're probably two different sermons, but because the like mind-blowing, earth-shattering sermons that have changed the course of human history, Jesus taught through these kinds of things more than once. All right, it makes sense. And and what I love about the Matthew's account of this in Matthew six and seven, five, six and seven, is the way that he describes the response of the people when they heard this teaching for the first time. So check it out in Matthew. Matthew 7, 28, he says, When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. Some of your translations might have astounded or astonished. Now, we need to, to see that word amazed and just, just forget for a minute that that word has become really ambiguous in our time. Like, you can use the word amazing in the same way that we use the word awesome, um, right, it's overused to the point that it's meaningless. Like, my new shoes are amazing, uh, this pizza is amazing, God is amazing, right? It's, it, 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 what does that mean? Well, what, what Matthew meant in the original meaning, it, what, what he's saying there is the word amazed is translated from a word that says um, they are out of their mind, out of mind, literally. They are out of mind at his teaching. And so that's, that's what I'm praying for this morning, that we would be out of our minds, that our minds would be blown by what Jesus says to us here this morning. Here's the truth. We have become accustomed to this teaching, far too accustomed to it, to the point where we've become comfortable. If we understand it rightly, it's impossible to be comfortable with what Jesus is going to say to us this morning. Impossible. There's a rabbi um, recently who wrote a book. I'm making noises. Sorry. I'm just going to put that there, and everything's going to be okay. There's a rabbi, uh, Orthodox rabbi, who wrote a book about Jesus, uh, Rabbi Jesus, and um, he said the history of Christianity, he, he summarized it like this, the history of Christianity is pretty much a history of Christians avoiding and evading the plain teaching of Jesus. Now, that's a little bit harsh, but there's some truth to it as well. Christians naturally, and I mean by their nature, want to avoid and evade the plain teaching of Jesus, particularly in these sermons that he preached in his earthly ministry. And so here's what we need. We need God by his spirit to overcome our nature and enable us to receive this word. I'm going to pray real quick for us and then we'll jump in. Father, we need your help. We acknowledge this morning we don't have it all together uh, we're not living as we ought to live. In so many ways, we're not following our Lord. And so I pray this morning that even in this time, even in these next few minutes, that you would be changing our hearts, shaping us, moulding us to be more like your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Grab a Bible. We're going to jump in. I'm using the NIV, so that's the blue Bible in your uh, seats the black one is ESV. It's really close to it. Don't freak out if you've got a few different words. The, the, uh, the passages are on the screen as well. And we're going to pick it up in verse 17 to 19. This is what Luke says. He went down with them, this is Jesus, and stood on a level place. Sermon on the plain. A large crowd of his disciples was there 
and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem and from the coastal region around Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by impure spirits were cured, and the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. First thing I want us to acknowledge this morning, Jesus is a healer. Our God is a God who heals. Jesus healed in his earthly ministry. He continues to heal today. And this is one of the things I love about our church. Really, from the beginning, the last 10 plus years, this church has been a church that acknowledges this fact, delights in this fact, and seeks to avail themselves of Jesus' healing ministry. There's great emphasis in this church and a receptivity to um, ministering to those who are sick whether that's in body or in mind, right? And so I have great memories from... I've been here seven years in January, so nearly seven years. Very early on in my ministry, I have great memories of, of, of sitting with Suzanne and with Elizabeth and, um, and praying, just over here, Tuesday mornings, in the foyer, praying together for God's ministry of healing in this church. Healing individuals, healing the community, listening to Elizabeth pray in Dinka and just thinking that was amazing, listening to Suzanne pray in English and just thinking that was amazing, right? <laughs> I love that. And going forward, listen, that, that's, a great, that's a great legacy, but going forward, more, more of that. That's what I want. More than anything else. I mean, it is great to have a full church and it would be great to have 10 times as many, but more than that, more than financial riches, more than fences and gates, right? More than these things that we desire, I want to see a dependency of God manifest in prayerfulness and, and expectancy. Right? That, that, that is the metric for church health, in my view. And I've seen it, and I want to see it more, because Jesus is a healer, and he loves to minister healing to those who are humble enough to ask and to receive. So that's the context for his sermon, and now he's about to get into it. Luke says, looking at his disciples. So these are the people who love him, trust him, follow him, you guys. He looks at you guys, and he says what we have named the Beatitudes. He, he teaches through these things called the Beatitudes, and if you're not familiar with that word, it's just basically it's a, it's a Jesus teaching on what a blessed life looks like. To put it into our context, right, if you want to know the Beatitudes of our time, go to, into Coles and just walk down the mag magazine aisle, right? What you've got there is just a, a patchwork of Beatitudes. This is what a blessed life is like. This is the kind of decor you need in your house. This is the kind of body you want to have. This is the, you know, the, the car that you need to drive, right? They're, they're the Beatitudes of our times. Or, or just update it 20 years, Instagram. This is your Instagram feed, right? These are, these are the Beatitudes of our times. This is what people are telling you is the marker of a blessed life. This is what you look like. This is what your house looks like. This is how your kids behave, right? These are the Beatitudes of our times. Jesus' own version of the Beatitudes takes all of those things and turns them upside down. His kingdom is an upside down kingdom, as we're going to see. Check it out. Verse 20 to 
to 23. This is the blessed life. Blessed are, those, uh, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you'll be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you'll laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven, for that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. What is the blessed life according to Jesus? It's something entirely counterintuitive. And, and it's easy to say it's, it's, it's counterintuitive to the world, but if we're honest, it's counterintuitive to us as well. It, I mean, does anyone read the Sermon on the Mount or this Sermon on the Plain and just think, yep, 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 done, A+. Plus. Jesus looks at his disciples and he knows that this is going to challenge them to the core. This is going to turn their world upside down. And if we're honest, even now, the same is true of us. The blessed life is something very different from what we expect. Why? Why does he say this is the blessed life? Poor, weeping, hungry, hated. Why is that a blessed life? Because Jesus, according to Jesus, having everything now is dangerous. Having all of your desires and needs met now is dangerous. You just see this. I mean, this is only part of a gospel that if you read through the length of Luke's gospel, he is very, very keen for you to know this truth. Having everything now is dangerous. Why is it easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven? Because having everything now is dangerous. Having everything now means we are far less likely to humble ourselves and come to God seeking his provision, seeking his salvation. What do I need to be saved from? I've got five bedrooms, two cars, health insurance. What do I, what do I need to be saved from? Jesus says it is a dangerous thing to have all that you want now. So he says, verse 24 to 26, stay with me. He says, Woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. It is a dangerous thing to have everything now because it diminishes our sense of desperate need for God's blessing and provision and salvation. Let me bring this back to healing for a second because this is an opportunity for us to look back right over the past year, over the past decade. Over the past year, we've had two very different stories of cancer in our community, haven't we? Two very different stories, two very divergent stories in some ways. We've had Sarah, in the last year, diagnosed with cancer, trusting in the Lord Jesus to heal her and experiencing that complete healing by God's grace. Amazing testimony of God's grace. We also had Brett, 
diagnosed with cancer, trusting Jesus for the first time, being baptised, prayed for, for God's ministry of healing, ending in death. Two very divergent stories with great similarities, both trusting in Jesus, both being prayed for, for healing. Sarah, by God's grace, receiving that healing, Brett, now in paradise. Now, here's, here's the thing, and, and, it's, and this is a dangerous thing to say, just like whenever you say anything that Jesus said, it's dangerous. Remember, they killed him, right? But here's the thing, according to Jesus, Sarah is in more danger. Sarah and Jimmy are in more danger. We, as their family, are in more danger now that she's received that healing than if she didn't. In some ways, Brett and his family are more blessed because they haven't received what they wanted and so they're in less danger of worshipping the gift rather than the giver. Now praise the Lord, not only for the healing, but that he has been ministering his presence to Jimmy and Sarah and the rest of us that we won't, that God willing, we won't worship that gift rather than the giver and I've seen evidence that all the glory has been going to him and a great renewed sense of dependency on his grace but the danger remains so let's just be really real here all of us I mean anyone living in our culture in this day and age is in danger by that definition I mean I Honestly, if you, didn't pay, if you weren't able to pay your mortgage this month, you're still in the rich camp. You're still in the dangerous position that Jesus lays out here. And he just continues, right? He just, he just continues. And, and, and listen, I, I understand th- this is challenging, the reason we've themed this service Truth and Love is because this is what really stuck out, jumped out at me in this reading this week, is that Jesus, more than anyone else who has ever lived, is, is someone who, with integrity, speaks truth and love to the extremes. Most of us, depending on our upbringing, depending on our personality, tend towards one or the other of those things. We speak the truth and to hell with the consequences or we speak love and you know, we kind of work our way around the truth. Jesus does both to the extreme. If your view is just of hippie Jesus who lies in the paddock and strokes lambs and says everyone's okay, you, you haven't seen the, the other side of Jesus. And I don't mean the other side, I mean the fully integrated side of Jesus which is truth. He doesn't mince words, he doesn't pull punches. And he goes on. And let me just read this really slow, all right? Because here's what I want you to do. As I read this next little bit real slow, I want you to just do a little heart check. Not of your husband or your neighbor, but of yourself. To see how you're going living up to this plain, basic 101 teaching of Jesus for his disciples, all right? Nice and slow, verse 27 to 31. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. How you doing? 
Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Do to others as you would have them do to you. That golden rule that summarizes so much of Jesus' teaching. Now, Renee and I have been working this golden rule thing with our kids pretty aggressively recently. You know, they're at the age where they're kind of, there's, there's a lot of reasons for them to be arguing, fighting, attempting to end one another's lives, right? It's, it's that kind of household. And so we're, we're working this, you know, and not, I mean, it's not enough to say, don't do that, it's wrong. You raise moralistic kids that way. But to, but to say, listen, Jesus is our king and he tells us to treat others as we would have them treat us. That's a whole other thing. But, listen, we have not gone nearly far enough with our kids in teaching them this. Because we're, we're functioning at the brother-sister level. Like, you should love each other because Jesus says you should love each other. He goes way beyond that. Right? We can say the same for our church. You should love one another as brothers and sisters because Jimmy said we're family and Jesus says we should love one another, treat one another as we would have one another treat us. He goes way beyond that. He says that's how you should treat your sworn enemy. Hmm. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. So can we just all acknowledge in the room right now that no one is doing this? Like some of us might be doing okay, but no one is doing this. No one is living the life that Jesus sets out for us here. And here's the thing, right? Jesus is not some kind of guru up on a mountain saying, you know, like, this happens all the time. You get these gurus and they tell everyone what to do, but they don't need to do any of it themselves because they live on a mountain somewhere. They don't live in the real world. Jesus is not that kind of teacher. He not only says, bless those who curse you, but when he hangs on a cross, he says, Father, forgive them. Absolute consistency. He not only speaks truth, but he is truth. He not only teaches love, but he is love. And so he goes on. There's more. I'm sorry. There's more. Verse 32 following. He says, If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. Do you know how many times I hear this kind of, um, this kind of, it's a very calmer, karmic kind of understanding of Christian ethics from Christians. It's kind of like what goes, what, what goes around comes around, like do good to those who do good to you. You know, I, you know, 
my, my preference is to be a loving person, but if someone's not loving to me, then that's their choice. I react to the way they behave. Jesus just says, no. Like, I don't care what they did to you. I'm telling you, you have to love them, bless them, forgive them, not demand anything of them, even if it seems fair and right to do so. Here's another truth and love thing going on here. Verse 32 to 36. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? And if you lend to those who you expect repayment, what credit is that? Even sinners do that. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, because He is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Here's Here's a truth and love thing going on here. Jesus says, love your enemies. Love your enemies, guys. This is is what Jesus says. All right, everyone look right at me. I'm losing you. Jesus says, you. If you you call yourself a Christian, and it's not just uh, I vote liberal, right? If it's a real discipleship thing, right? He says, love your enemies. And, And everything within us wants to say, why should we? And Jesus says, because you are ungrateful and wicked, and I still love you. Because you are ungrateful and wicked, and I still love you. I pursue you. I keep covenant with you. So lift your eyes above the ethics of our time, the eye for an eye, the karma, what goes around comes around. See how I treat you and do likewise. He says, then you'll be children of God. Not because doing this makes you a child of God, but because being a child means that you are like your father. You look to him. You look to behave like he behaves, to act like he acts. I'm hearing more and more at the moment that my boy Judah is a lot like me. He's going to be five in a week or so, and more and more people say, well, he looks like you, he has the same mannerisms as you, and he says some of the same things that you say, which is, at the very same time, endearing and terrifying. It's terrifying to think that I am kind of reproducing myself because I know myself And if he turns out exactly like me, I'm going to be really disappointed in me. (laughs) But this is what it is to be a child. It is to grow up in the image of our parents in some way. And that's exactly what we want, exactly what Jesus calls us to. He says that then, then your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High. Why will we be more like God's children? Because we'll be more like him. We will see injustice and anger and enmity and we will return it with love and faithfulness and mercy. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. So here's the big idea for us. Moving forward as a church into the next 10 years and the next 
10,000 years, God willing. Here's, here's what we want. we want. We want this church to be more and more like their daddy. We want this church to grow more and more and more like their father. And we want this church to be like students who grow more and more like their teacher. That's how he finishes off. We're going to look at the last two verses now. and I mean, honestly, this could have been the whole sermon. So just stick with me, verse 39 to 40. This is what he says. He also told them this parable. Can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall into a pit? The student is not above the teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher. Verse 39 is what happens to us in a very short space of time, like maybe before the 11th birthday comes around. This is what happens to us as soon as we stop following Jesus. We fall into a hole is what happens. And eventually, whether it's in the next few years or in the next few generations, the church shuts down and they build a KFC here, right? That's what happens. That would be my preference. I don't know. As soon as we stop following Jesus, like if we start following me or some of our leaders or the the guy or girl who replaces me, this is where we end up, in a pit. Because it's the blind leading the blind. That's who we are by nature and choice. But to the extent that we follow the master, to the extent that we're trained by the teacher, to the extent that we emulate our father, then we might see some glory in our midst. Then we might see some fruitfulness. Please be really wary of the danger of following any man or woman. Anyone who stands up the front and yells at you for 30 minutes, be wary of following them alone. But to the degree that they are conduits of the leadership of Jesus, then we we should and will follow. Verse 39 is what happens if we stop looking to Jesus as the author and perfecter of our faith. Verse 40 is what will happen if we, by God's grace, make all of life all about Jesus. The student is not above the teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher. Don't you want that? Like really deep down, once you get past all of your own selfishness and and self-congratulations and and self-esteem and once you get past all of that junk, don't you really want this? You want to be like your teacher? Don't you want to be more like Jesus? If you don't have that as, an, as, a, as a ready affection within your heart, deep down, then just read one gospel. I challenge you. You can do it this week. Easy. Read one gospel. Study the, the, the life, death, and, and, and resurrection of Jesus. And I promise you, if you are saved, you'll want to be more like him. He is everything that you are made for. He is everything that deep down you want to be. And so, listen, as we fulfill the mission that God has given us, day by day, making all of life all about him, he will, by his grace, shape us more and more to be like his son.
I was searching this past week or two or three or four weeks, searching for something to, to hang this day on, some kind of fresh revelation, some kind of fresh vision of the future that we could say, all right, from this, this, this landmark on, we're going to be heading this direction. I came up with nothing. And I think it's because we need nothing more than what God has already revealed to us. There is no higher goal than making all of life all about him. So as we walk forward together in this, you can be assured that our prayers, not just our prayers, but our efforts, our blood, sweat, tears, our, all of our intentions are going to be focused on that goal to be a community of people helping people make all of life all about Jesus. I'm going to pray for us. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you so much that we have in our hands the very words of God. And this morning we thank you particularly for Jesus' teaching. Lord, it is difficult to hear. It is challenging. It makes us uncomfortable in our nature. We want to push back and rebel, and yet we know, really, we do, we know that you speak these words in truth and love. And the best thing that could happen to us, better than healing, better than prosperity, better than Christian kids, better than every material blessing, Lord, more than all of those things, the best thing for us is to hear these words and to be shaped by them, to be made more like our Father, to be transformed, to be more like our teacher. Can we just say together, corporately, let's, let's, let's lift up our hearts now and say, Father, have your way in this church. Shape us, guide us, kill off all of our plans that don't align with your will. Redirect us. We want to be led by you. We are but sheep and you are our Senior pastor, Lord Jesus, please lead us. Do all those things that will be good for us, that we might live a truly blessed life. We pray for the coming year and the coming years and the coming decades and generations and millenniums, Lord, that there would in this place be an unbroken chain of faithfulness to the Lord Jesus and to his gospel. And we pray these things in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen.